Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. If you're new to the show, I'd like to say welcome. If you're a returning listener, I'd like to say welcome back. Before we get started, I'd just like to ask you a favor. If you're currently streaming this episode, would you mind stopping it and downloading the episode and then listening to it? It's a good way for me to keep track of the downloads. And to be honest with you, the more downloads I get, the more I get paid. I would really appreciate it if you wouldn't mind doing that and maybe do it for all the content creators that you enjoy listening to. It's a great way for us to keep track of the downloads and put a little extra money in our pocket so if i could ask you for one favor that would be it now on to the show Nystrom, Nystrom's really getting some good right hands in. Gillies is down with Sandstrom. Somebody better help Sandstrom. Everyone must be held accountable for their actions. You cannot see your star carried out in a stretcher and do nothing about it. Oh my, did Mick plant one on C-card. Wow. You can't put a bounty on a man's head. I just did. But just a minute, Al Arbor has won four Stanley Cups, so don't start telling Al Arbor what to do, you and John Davison. This is Coliseum Chronicles The Penalty Box, your source for Islanders Enforcer Talk. Proud member of the Hockey Podcast Network, and I'm your host, Joe Lazito. And welcome to episode 130. Folks, once again, we are going off the island, this time part one of my three-part series with rugged, hard-hitting defenseman Dave Marcinician. But first, as always, let's discuss if you're on social media. Who isn't on social media that's under the age of 70? And to be honest with you, I know some people over the age of 70 who are on social media. So if you're on social media and you're interested in connecting with the show or myself, and as I've said, the show is myself, but uh, scroll down to the show notes of this episode and you'll see links for Twitter, 
Facebook, and Instagram. And uh, easy to follow links and uh, and let's connect and um, let's chat. Also, you'll find a link in the show notes for Islanders A to Z. Now, if you're an Islanders fan, you know about this. If you're a regular listener to the show, you know about this. But just in case you're not, Islanders A to Z is a children's book written by Joe Buono and illustrated by Joe Marisich. It's a great book, a uh, great way to introduce your children to the Islanders and the history of the franchise. Uh, and then for, uh, you know, old folks like myself, it's just cool to look at the illustrations. Joe Marisich is extremely talented. And if you don't know by now, Joe Marisich is the artist who designed the logo for this very program. And I am eternally grateful to Joe. So, Click on that link and order that book, whether you have a baby or not, whether you have a toddler or not. If you're an Islanders fan, or even if you're just a hockey fan in general, I guess if you're a Rangers fan, it might bring back some old memories with all those great players in there. But uh, but yeah, I would definitely get it. Click on that link and order it. Now, as I said, I'm a proud member of the Hockey Podcast Network. Uh, the network is now into the triple digits in terms of shows. And if we start... With the original gangsta, Darren, from Martinsville, Saskatchewan. The OG of the original podcast, the OG of the original podcast genre. The OG of the hockey fight podcast genre. He is the senior member of the Four Horsemen in terms of this network. I think in terms, no, he's the senior member of the Four Horsemen in terms of podcasting too. Uh, His latest episode, he continues his breakdown of the Hockey News Enforcer Week Top 5s. I believe today, uh, I listened to it this morning. It's Monday, folks. Uh, Today he did the St. Louis Blues, and it was actually a pretty good list. Um, I I like the list. Um, There are a few people on there, an honorable mention. Well, let's start over. There's a few people who I think should have been in the top five that weren't. Uh, there's one person in the top five, definitely, that I don't think deserves to be in the top five for the Blues, uh, and it's not a knock against him. Uh, they're just a team that's had some uh, pretty impressive list of enforcers. So, uh, But I guess that's what uh, that's what makes the world go around, uh, differing opinions. And uh, also, uh, I believe there was a story that Darren uh, recited. It was uh, 10 stories of people who faced Bob Probert and lived to tell about it. So those are pretty good, too. Uh, so, but as always, check out Darren's back catalog, check out his current episode and check out the back catalog. Uh, you won't be disappointed. And, uh, you know, folks, he's, I think he's at episode 330 or 331. And for myself at episode 130, 330 seems like light years away. And, um, it's just unfathomable at this point, but you never know. But, uh, credit to him. He, He keeps on going and, um. You know, like I said, he's got that sexy voice that the ladies love. And some men, I'm sure, too. So uh, check it out. Also, <laughs> Darren said today that the uh, Five for Fighting podcast is on the monthly cycle. Uh, one show a month. But uh, apparently, I-, I was looking forward to Alex next episode with the-, the top five toughest ECHL players. Because I wanted to know his top five. And I wanted to know about the responses that he received from the listeners. But... Fuck, I just want to hear his next episode to find out what the hell has been going on in his life. Now, I know that Darren and Alex speak a lot uh, regularly, probably every day. So I think Darren's got the inside dope on uh, what's going on in Alex's life. But 
I got to tell you, I am curious to hear what the hell is going on with this kid. Like, I don't know. I, I think Darren said he's got car problems or work problems, but I don't know. I, I think he's just he's just living the good life. I don't know. Maybe he just doesn't have time for this. But check out his back catalog as well. And I know before Christmas, I would imagine. No, I, I tease, of course, of course. The ECHL season is beckoning. I know uh, Jimmy Mazza, a former guest, I was chatting with him last night. He's heading back to Orlando soon. So I'm sure with the um, with the opening of the ECHL season that Alec will have an episode coming soon. And by the way, uh, I know I've ranted about this before, and I don't know if I have anybody from the East Coast Hockey League that listens to this, but what the fuck? I mean, seriously, you know, targeting is, I mean, they don't even try to hide it anymore. Um, Alec posted, uh, some Darian Skeo fights. Now, if you don't know who Darian Skeo fight, that if you don't know who Darian Skeo is, look him up. The dude's a fucking killer. And his fights are fun to watch. They're amazing. Obviously, he's got to be in everybody's top five in the East Coast Hockey League. And, um, as far as toughness goes in fighting and dude's entertaining to watch. And Alec has the video up for, I don't know, eight seconds before, uh, the ECHL puts in a copyright claim. And they, then he does it again, and they do it again. And it, it just makes me – I don't I, – I just – like I said, I don't understand the philosophy. So this is an open note to the East Coast Hockey League. Folks, your league right now is the closest thing to what hockey should be. It has everything, including the toughness. So for people that enjoy the tough aspect of hockey – you're the go-to league, whether you like it or not. You, you guys, your your um, general managers and your coaches are the most open-minded when it comes to the sport. They still believe that fighting and physical play has a place in the game. So you're the go-to league. So for for people like myself and 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 others that miss physical hockey, that if I want to watch hockey, I'm going to tune into an East Coast Hockey League game. And what Alec is trying to do. I mean, listen, he's trying to promote his podcast. He's trying to promote his YouTube channel. Uh, he's also promoting your league for free. Alec has a pretty big following. And for you guys to just constantly shit on this kid and put out all of his content, just douse it. I mean, you're fucking idiots. Like, it doesn't make any sense. You're getting free publicity from a guy with a pretty big following of fans of your league. I don't understand. I do. If East Coast Hockey League, if you guys have a marketing department, fire them because this is free fucking marketing, free publicity. This guy's doing it. You're not paying him a dime. He does it because he loves your league. He loves hockey fights. He loves physical play. And you fucking idiots keep shutting his channel down. It's like the mindless, like (laughs) East Coast Hockey League. You guys have have players in your league who fight. Embrace it. I'm not saying you have to promote it, but your own teams put videos out of their players fighting. So it's obviously you have this vendetta against Alec, and ultimately Alec's going to be fine. He's still going to do his show. And the only people you're really hurting are yourselves. It's your own league. You're losing free publicity. I don't understand 
why that's such a hard fucking concept for them. But anyway, I've I've ranted about this before. I'm not going to go any further, but it just doesn't. And, and oh, let me just say one thing. You've had I've had players on my show, and I know Alec has had players on his show who have said they love his channel. They love the Five for Fighting channel because they can watch their own fights. They can watch other players' fights. So you have players in your own league on the payroll of teams in your own league basically telling you they like what Alec is doing, but your your heads are so far up your collective asses that you don't know what the fuck you're doing. So bravo to you, ECHL, you fucking idiots. Also, uh, the uh, Five in a Game podcast should be uh, coming back around shortly. Uh, Jordan, out in Alberta, hopefully will be making his way back to Eastern Canada, and uh, and we'll get some more great stories uh, from the Quebec League, uh, both junior and pro. Um, although it'll be interesting to hear now with the, uh, well, I mean the fight limitations have been going on. I think uh, I think the um, mainstream media is really just getting a hold of the story with the Quebec League, but basically what it now amounts to is extortion. And, um, but it'll be interesting to hear Jordan's take on it. So in closing for this little segment, um, you got the fourth line voice podcast, you got the five for fighting podcast, and you got five in a game podcast. Check out any current episodes, check out all of the back catalogs, and please subscribe to the corresponding YouTube channels for each of those good boys, the good old boys. <laughs> if you know, you know, all right. Also. The big cheese on the network. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm I got caught in my laugh there. Let me take a sip of coffee. The big cheese on the network is TR Terry Ryan Hitch from Shorzy. God, I can't fucking wait for season two. Um, I can't fucking wait. It's gonna be amazing. Uh, Terry's recent episode. He had uh, Andrew Shaw, uh, Blackhawks player, Stanley Cup champ. I think he played in Montreal too. Um, I think that's the same guy. Uh, so definitely, uh, check out Terry's show. Does an amazing job. He's an amazing storyteller. And Terry, I don't, <clears throat> I don't think you listen to all my episodes, but what you call rambling, I call very entertaining. So, uh, just keep up the good work. Now for regular listeners, you know, I am a collector of game used gear from enforcers, um, mostly with the Islanders and the Quebec Nordiques, but I am open to listening to offers from all anybody uh there's only a few players i would outright say no no thanks not interested but as an example today's guest dave marcinician i do not own a single piece of dave marcinician game used gear so if you're in possession of anything that you think you might want to get rid of uh might want to make a little money on maybe trade i don't know but if you have anything at dave marcinicians that you are looking to maybe get rid of please send me a message and maybe we can work something out and speaking of Dave Marcinician. So this is um, another off the island segment. I actually did have a, a guest. I was hoping to interview a guest and have a, a brand new episode for you this week. And then uh, I forgot to uh, touch base. I was supposed to touch base on Saturday and I didn't remember. And uh, that's on me, folks. But the interview is going to happen. That's no brainer. That was just uh, that was my fault. And uh It'll be worth the wait, trust me, for sure. It definitely will, but uh, but that's on me. 
And, uh, you know, old age creeps in, I guess. I don't even remember what the hell I was doing Saturday where I would have completely forgotten. I mean, I, I have no idea. I don't know. I, I'd like to say I was curing cancer or doing something important, but I, I could have been in a SVU marathon or who know, me, maybe nodding out. I don't know. I definitely wasn't watching college football. I could tell you that. But um, so... Um, I have the uh, Off the Island with Dave Marcinician. Now, this was an interview that I did uh, back when I had the Nordics Knuckles podcast, which, as you all know, is dead and buried. Uh, Marshy was an unbelievable guest, great stories. And um, and just, you know, another, for, for the folks that don't like fighting and don't like the enforcers, I had never met Dave before, but I'm going to shout out, um, and I hate shout out, that sounds so MTV-ish. Um, Howie Rosenblatt, uh, Howie Rosenblatt and I are Facebook friends and, uh, I know Howie plays on the, uh, Cycl- Cincinnati Cyclones, um, alumni team. And I just sent Howie a message once and said, Hey, I know your, uh, pals with Dave Marcinician. I'd love to have him on my show. And 24 hours later I had Dave's number and, and we hooked it up and Dave was awesome. So, um, so I got three parts here with Marcinician and, um, I would highly recommend you listen to every single second of it. Dave was awesome. Uh, I will have another lost episode this Friday. That'll be with Mike McWilliam. That was uh, my original episode three. He was my third guest. So that'll come out Friday. But, um, but you know, I got these uh, American League guys. You know, Dave played a few games in the NHL. Mac played, uh, I think it was eight games with the Islanders. Uh, and I love their stories because these guys, you know, they just, you know, they, they just work their bags off for the chance to play in the NHL. And I'm glad that both of these guys did. Um, so, you know, I have after Mac, I think the uh, next lost episodes would be the three-parter with Mick Vakoda. And Mick played a ton of games in the NHL. And, um, I mean, Mick was, <laughs> Mick was Mick, amazing guest. But, you know, for guys like Marcinition and guys like Mac, it's just great that they're rewarded at least in small part for their effort because they deserve to be rewarded and uh you know as you can tell in these interviews it's a long journey and um <clears throat> i think at this point i'm kind of rambling here and you don't want to hear me talk about why why on god's green earth would you want to listen to me talk about dave marcinician's journey when i have the episode here right on tap and you can listen to the man himself so after these commercial messages i hope that you enjoy part one with Dave Marcinician and until next week folks everybody out there please stay safe college football fans are you ready for week one DraftKings Sportsbook is hooking you up with a can't miss offer to start the season strong this week new customers can bet just five dollars on college football and score two hundred dollars in bonus bets instantly anything can happen in college football your team can go from unranked to dynasty mode in just a couple of years change comes fast. The only thing that's a lock is the great offers from DraftKings Sportsbook. Life's more fun when you're in on the action. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code THPN. New customers can score $200 in bonus bets instantly when they bet just $5 on college football. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code THPN. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. 
in Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boothill Casino and Resort, 21 plus, age varies by jurisdiction, void in Ontario. See dkng.com slash football for eligibility, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Bonus bets expire seven days after issuance. Eligibility and deposit restrictions apply. Today's guest on the Nordiques Knuckles podcast played the 1991-92 season in the Quebec organization, mostly as a stud defenseman for Halifax, but had a couple cups of coffee in the show with the Nordiques. In 639 professional games between the NHL, AHL, and IHL, he accumulated 40 goals, 152 assists for uh, 192 points, and an impressive 1,383 penalty minutes. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dave Marcinishin to the Nordiques Knuckles podcast. How are you doing, Dave? Very well, Joseph. Thanks for the invite. I appreciate the uh, your time. Uh, I really appreciate it. I appreciate your enthusiasm as well. Um, so my first question to all my guests, um, you were born in Edmonton, Alberta. So if I'm able to jump into a time machine and go back to uh, see a young Dave Marcinishin, while you're out there on the pond or at the rinks, who is Dave Marcinishin emulating? Who was your favorite player as a kid? Well, that's tough. I, I probably didn't, you know, mentally re- referred to what my dad was saying, right? And uh, who who he liked. Because mm-hmm. when you're a young kid, you just hear what your parents say, right? Yep. I had a couple older brothers that really obviously toughened me up. And... Uh, how it helped me compete too, right? Mm-hmm. They're bigger than me and older than me. So, uh, but you know, Bobby Orr was obviously a name my dad referenced a lot. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh, what an iconic name, right? To think about how he changed the game, literally, as a, from a defenseman's standpoint uh, for the entire NHL and the future to come. Uh, you know, I'm just watching uh, the Oilers back in the heyday, right? Uh, what a with the glory days we had in the 80s, I was right then and there in my prime teenage years watching the greatest team at that time to, you know, win cups after cup. When you would play, did you tuck your jersey in the one side like uh, Gretzky did? <laughs> you know, it's funny, like Gretzky, as great as he was, like so amazing. I It wasn't little features like that that maybe liking a player or you just you always thought like he's just great. It didn't yeah. matter his shirt was tucked in or not. So uh, give me a, a geography lesson here. So I'm, I'm here on Long Island. Um, I know the provinces. I, I know, you know, the towns that I read on the back of the hockey cards. But uh, you played in the uh, Alberta Junior Hockey League for Fort Saskatchewan. But Fort Saskatchewan is not in Saskatchewan. It's in Alberta. Um, so in that part of Alberta, are there a lot of forts with other province names? Because if I had a gun to my head and someone says, where's Fort Saskatchewan? I would say, well, probably Saskatchewan. Yeah, of course. And, and it's only about 25 minutes uh, northeast of Edmonton. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I don't think there's a lot. I know in BC, there's a lot of ports, mm-hmm. like yeah. Port and Port, you know, or maybe Port Chippewan is another one. Uh, but yeah, there's, it's not like it's a port either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there's more uh, uh, native uh, settling. Okay. where those names come from really out on the prairies right 
yeah, no, I, that's as good an explanation as I, as I would assume, because I wouldn't know anything about it. So, uh, so I appreciate that, uh, geography lesson. So for the, uh, for that, I got your last season there in Fort Saskatchewan, uh, has you listed as playing 55 games. You led the league in penalty minutes with 311, 52 points, not a lot of information out there. What I was able to gather, I got, a, uh, probably the biggest named teammates you had, I guess that maybe NHL fans would know would be Zarly Zalapski's probably the biggest name and, uh, Brad Warenka. Did you happen to play with Zarly at all? Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. He was here and, uh, Obviously, a very highly touted uh, individual, right, to make it to the NHL ranks. Uh, his skating ability and his prowess with the puck, a uh, very talented man and very unfortunate yeah. to hear of his passing so early in life. Uh, very, very unfortunate circumstances. You definitely hate to hear those stories when uh, you just think what a great athlete. Uh, but knock on wood, it's one of those things that reminds you in life that I enjoy every day live it to the fullest and, uh, you know, love your kids, hug them and, uh, you know, be respectful because things come around in life and you always want to, you know, be remembered as a, as a good person. Yeah, definitely. But Gurley uh, was a very talented man. He, he really was. Yeah. I was trying to think about, you know, watching, cause it's not like you're an average player and then you get to the NHL and you're just awesome. Like I, I would imagine that at that level, you could kind of tell how good he was. Yeah, he's dominating. His skating ability back then, right, for his age was just heads and shoulders above everybody, just that stride he had, and that carried forward to, you know, the years he performed for so many uh, with Team Canada and in the NHL, right? Yeah, oh yeah. So now I couldn't find too much, so I I tried to do a little research on the league, and there's not a whole lot out there for that time frame. Uh, Even looking at the other teams, the only names I could come up with that played physical that were out there, obviously, I'm sure the Alberta Junior League back then was was pretty wild. Uh, And I might be saying this wrong, Hobama had uh, uh, Sean Wheeler and Darcy Lowen. Uh, St. Albert had Dean Ewan, but I couldn't find any other names. So I guess uh, you'll have to carry this part. Uh, any memorable moments from uh, from your time in the fort? You know, I think it's funny, actually. I think in a preseason game, I think Dean Ewan and I fought in uh, St. Albert. Oh, okay. Okay. I'd, I'd probably be my first fight as I was a 16-year-old, 17-year-old. Oh, wow. I'll have to ask him about that, see if he remembers. Yeah, I think the only thing I think I did was there wasn't much of an exchange. There was a bit of rustling around, but I tore my knuckle trying to hold his jersey. Okay. <laughs> right? So, yeah. and uh, I think that that was about it. The only thing I can remember, and you know, mom, mom was in the stands, and I I got kicked out of the game, so I had to go up, and she's like, "Let me see your hand," and it's already bandaged, and I'm like, "Well, that's it, mom. Sorry, that's all there is. I tore my, tore my knuckle open. I'm fine. Don't worry about it." <laughs> so since you brought up your mom, I, I, I always hear the stories about, you know, especially with the in juniors that um, of, of guys who would fight where the dads were usually gung ho and the moms didn't even want to look. Was was that your mom as well? I I think mom just was probably always concerned about injuries, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, looking out for her son and, and thinking, what's the worst? They, they're always thinking, what's the worst can happen instead of, you know, he's. He's able to handle himself. He's he's a big boy, but you're always, especially the I was the youngest in the family. Oh, you're the baby. I'm the baby, right? Mm-hmm. So mom's always like, I'm the last one to leave the nest, but mm-hmm. I'm I'm getting out of the house earlier than everybody else and my siblings because I'm off running around playing junior hockey, right? So I think sure 
her concern and worry was always like, what's, what's happening to my baby? And she couldn't see me in Kamloops. Yeah. And with every game in the fort or on the road. So there's probably a lot of things she didn't know about, which right. probably kept her peace of mind probably a lot, <laughs> lot better than watching everything. So after that season in the fort, I believe that was your first year that you were draft eligible, correct? Uh, yeah, I was 17. So I guess I could have been. I think so. Or is it 18 you have to be? I'm not sure. But I, but it's weird because I know Connor Bedard right now. I was kind of looking at that, and I think his birthday is like right after the draft. Okay. But he's draft eligible this year. So I'm not sure what window of time mm-hmm. occurs there for draft eligibility. They might have changed that a little bit. Okay. So I my, my question was um... – did you actually get to speak to any teams? Did any teams reach out to you? And I know, like you say, it's probably a little different now than it was back then. I mean, even just the coverage of the draft is so much more now than it was back then. Um, I didn't know if you if you probably didn't have an agent at that point, but did any teams actually reach out to you? Uh, not during the Fort Saskatchewan year, but I know my when I th- you know when I think my draft year was my first year in Kamloops. Okay, okay. I do remember, geez, I, I remember it was the middle of, I think, summer and or spring, right before the draft. And I think Minnesota reached out. I think they probably had me on the phone for a good two and a half hours. Wow. Very extensive interview, uh, playing out different scenarios on the ice, off the ice. Uh, quite detailed, trying, you know, trying to really get to know your personality and how you would behave in certain uh, situations. Mm-hmm. And I think Jersey reached out prior to the draft. Um, I can't think of it. I, I want to say that there was one other team mm-hmm. that did reach out with a phone call, but I can't, I can't remember who it might have been. But I do remember the Minnesota uh, phone call being very long and very in-depth. Uh, so then you mentioned Kamloops. So how, how is it that you ended up in Kamloops? Is it that you they listed you? Is that how you ended up there? Is it by geography? or? No, it wasn't that time. Like, the WHL, obviously the Canadian Junior Hockey League, right, as most people know it as, right across Canada. Mm-hmm. I think those drafts occurred now in Bantam. Okay. They, they draft the guys out of Bantam. And that wasn't the case back then. And I I really would have to tip my hat um, to my midget coaches for really progressing my career along to that, to that level because I don't think I had a very good um, promoter at the Fort Saskatchewan uh, level, mm-hmm. my coach, he was more willing to promote all of the guys and all of the defensemen that wanted to go because the AJHL is tier two mm-hmm. and CGHL is tier one junior. Okay. But if you, but if you play a one game in tier one junior, you're not eligible for American college uh, scholarships. Okay. So the colleges draft out of the Saskatchewan Junior Hockey League, the AJHL, the BCJHL, that level, Tier 2. Okay. And so my coach, you know, asked me, and I was like, at that time, I always, my end goal was to get to the NHL. So to get to the NHL, if you looked at it back then, statistically, there were so many players getting drafted out of the WHL, Ontario Hockey League, Quebec Major Junior, that I thought that's my path to get there. Right. If I'm going to see success, that's that's the way I have to go. So I wasn't really interested in the, and I had great marks. I was very good in school. My I was very astute student, mm-hmm. and my uh, 
but my 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 direction my guide in, in my head was I, I need to make it to tier one so the coach then in Fort Saskatchewan he was more apt to promote all of the other guys that wanted scholarships because that scholarship money kicks money back to their teams gotcha okay mm-hmm. right so who's going to promote that I, I didn't get a lot of time at Christmas I almost I almost quit hockey that year wow okay Jeez. I was riding the pine watching these other guys play. I was frustrated. And my dad was the one that just said, you know, Dave, you, you, you've got it, but you got to stick with it. And you can't let one guy derail you and you can't let him get you that frustrated. Just stay the course. Things will turn out for you. And, you know, he was right. Yeah, he really. Was, <laughs> but it was a tough, it was a tough year, a really tough year. So, Getting to, getting Fort Saskatchewan, my 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 midget coaches Warren and Bob, they came out. They watched me. They knew Bob Brown and Ken Hitchcock. They said, "Hey, why don't you come out and watch this guy?" And they did. And it was pretty tough game. I broke my thumb, <sighs> so I got hit and I jammed my thumb. Back then in Fort Saskatchewan, there was there was metal fencing around the back of the net there wasn't glass oh wow okay so where the poles met there was a gap and my hand got jammed in there and i snapped my thumb but i played the rest of the game mm-hmm. and my and my midget coaches contacted me after and said hey you know geez like you, you look like you're having a hard time and i was like I, I go yeah i broke my thumb and they were like what and they were like okay we'll let them know that's what happened they'll come and watch you when you're healthy again so that communication there was imperative. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right for them to know that I was playing injured, and I think, and I think, you know, that's probably kudos to me. They're thinking, okay, this guy's tough enough; he's willing to like fight through that injury and, and finish the game. We got to go back and watch him when he's healthy. So I know my midget coaches were the promoters of that, not my Fort Saskatchewan coach. It's amazing because you have someone in your corner, and if they weren't in your corner, who knows? You may never have been an NHL player. Absolutely, yeah. right? That one little note and and information being uh, doubled back to to Hitchcock and Bob Brown to say, "Hey, you know, go watch him again," was probably exactly that key key period, the switching note of getting to Kamloops in Tier One. So we get to Kamloops now, and you brought up Hitch already, so I'll ask you. And I'm going to guess that you, you probably liked him, and he probably liked you, because as we'll discuss later on, he brought you back uh, to another team, or you went to another team he coached. And I would imagine if if, if you guys didn't see eye-to-eye, that wouldn't have happened. Um, but, uh, you know, people know Ken Hitchcock for his time in the NHL, but he really is a, a legendary WHL coach with Kamloops. Uh, what was it like playing for him? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and I and I think um, you know it, I'm sure most players would say this about uh, Hitch is that he's so detail oriented. He gets the most out of every player and every team. Uh, he changed gears on the fly, which made him a very versatile coach. He had many systems in place. He ran a great practice, and he had high expectations of everyone. And those expectations, if you were to look, you know, looking at players and rosters, when you talk about his success in junior, we'll take a look at the rosters he had and how many guys carried on to play pro, whether it was AHL, IHL, ECHL, and NHL. 
that's an indicator of a a coach who knows how to develop a hockey player. And I think, unfortunately, maybe I was a little bit spoiled where I feel that, you know, you're like, okay, you're in junior and now you're going to make pro. Boy, the coaching's even going to be better. It's a step up, right? You're going to professional. Huh? <laughs> well, oh my God, was I wrong? <laughs> that was such a that was such an eye opener. And we can get into that. We can we can yeah. discuss those, those transitions in in uh, coaching and, and careers. But Hitch was um, just he had it all. Yeah. No, he he was firm. He. He had high expectations again, I'll say that. And we had a, a sign in our dressing room um, above the door. It was 50-60. And everybody touched that as they went out the door. And he expected 50 shots a game, 60 hits a game. Oh, I never heard that before. Yeah. And that's a high expectation in junior. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Well, that's, that's a high expectation in the NHL nowadays. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially, especially with the shot blocking. I mean, you yeah. look at statistics now most teams are up above 50 shots attempted right or 25 of those are blocked and you're mm-hmm. down around the 32 35 range but it, it just goes to show you the sacrifice and what it takes to play in the nhl you you have to get in front of the puck yeah um so one of my favorite parts of doing these interviews is when it's sort of like name association and i throw out some names of uh of guys you played with and uh you know just your fun stories or what your memories are of them and um your your career actually from your western league days to to when you retired that's i mean i'm so happy that i was fortunate enough to be alive for that time because this is just my wheelhouse um the western league back then it's just unbelievably tough it's scary tough and you played with one of the guys who was probably one of the heavyweight kings back then and uh, he went on to a fine career in the NHL, Rudy Poshek. What, what do you remember about Rudy? Oh, well, you know, lots of good memories about Rudy. You know, he was a great teammate. Uh, he would step in front of a train for any any one of us. Yeah. And uh, it showed on the ice. So he, he had epitomized toughness in the sense that if he got hit with a punch, it just made him mad. It yeah. didn't. I mean, he just could not be hurt. He could not be put down. And he just continued to streamline his efficiency as a fighter. And it's pretty tough going up against a guy when you know you can't hurt him. And when he's willing to exchange with the best of them and really exchange with them, that's a tough opponent. And uh, I mean, I remember, you know, like we talked about this previously. In our uh, little quick conversation we had prior to this and, you know, gouging up the helmets with razor blades back in junior. I know, Ju- uh, Rudy, I think I think it might have been Jim Agnew playing for the Portland Winterhawks. Jim, Jim gave him a pretty good goal one day. And Rudy came into the locker room and he was livid. Awesome. <laughs> and so he's like, that's it. <laughs> So back then we had with a, a a product called Tough Skin. Tough Skin, yeah. Mm-hmm. So what it is is a it's a lube a, a spray that helps a trainer put on pre wrap and tape to like you know anchor tape to an injury like an ankle or a wrist so it stays in place as you're sweating and playing. 
I think Rudy emptied a jar of that stuff onto his hands. <laughs> put a half a jar of Vaseline on his face. And he didn't even grab his gloves. He just carried them. <laughs> he didn't want the tough skin to come off inside his gloves. Mm-hmm. And he just went up to, you know, he knew right first shift of the next period. He's like, he looked at Jim like, we're, we're going and you're not, you're not <laughs> denying me. And, uh, yeah, he just, he buried him. Right. And he just. He was just a guy that had that mentality of I am the toughest guy and you prove me wrong. Yeah. So, yeah, and obviously you watch any of his videos, you can, you can tell what a, what a tough man he was. Yeah. The two names that always come up when I interview uh, guys that played out West in this time period, as far as like the toughest in their respective divisions is Rudy and Ken Baumgartner. Those two guys, they're always the two names that come up from everybody just about being the toughest guys in the divisions at the time. Yeah. And, and Bomber was out in PA, I think at the time. Yeah. And we did, we did, um, <clears throat> we only went out there once. So it was really weird. We, because I think of trying to save financial costs to the team, you know, going from the, <clears throat> and it's kind of weird. I'm not sure how many people know this difference, but, there's a Western division in the Western Hockey League and an Eastern division yep. in the Western Hockey League. Mm-hmm. So those those travel times were like 18, 20 hours by bus. Yeah, it's crazy. And so guys were missing school. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's punishing. You're you're missing school for a week and a half just to play five games out, out east and vice versa. So we only got out there one year once. <clears throat> and I remember the game was tough. It was a physical game. They had a good team, so did we. But so did all the teams like Moose yeah. Jaw, Warriors, Medicine Hat, right? They had they had guys like Kelly Bumgarner. I, I fought Kelly Buckberger that mm-hmm. that swing out there, and Dave Manson was on Baumgartner's team at the yep. same time. Like two really big tough boys, mm-hmm. and that's that's what it was. There was there was at least if you looked at lineups back then, you could probably pick three to four guys on each lineup and go, man, those guys can handle themselves. You had another guy on your team that obviously went on to a very good NHL career, tag team with Rudy Poshak. That's a chief, Craig Berube. Uh, what do you remember about playing with Chief? Yeah, I, I know another another phenomenal teammate, and it, I think it really goes to show why he had such a long-standing career in the NHL. Like yeah. a well-liked guy, fought tough, hard, hard as nails would do anything for his teammates and his team to be successful. Love seeing him be successful as a coach now with St. Louis and win the cup. That yeah. was fantastic. You just love to see your alumni buddies do well, right? Yeah. But yeah, Gio and Craig and I had to tie into each other when he was with Philly and I was with Jersey. We fought in a preseason game. We fought regular season and you know, you're just, you don't, uh, those things are put aside. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I mean it's it's a job, and you're getting paid to do this, and it's a, it's a battle out there. You're warriors, so you know that when you cross paths, it's the potential is going to be high that you're going to be fighting these guys. But uh, Craig was a fair guy, right? He's oh, not against anybody. He didn't take advantage of situations. I thought he was a real gamer, and he was, you know, he would let you know he was going to fight you. He'd square off, and uh, I think you know has a ton of respect in the NHL for, for what he did uh, as a fighter and as a player and teammate back then. Well, definitely. Um, one of the guys I reached out to that you played with, and you were you were a rookie with Kamloops, he was an overager. It was uh, Mark Kachowski. And uh, people 
might remember him from uh, his stint in Pittsburgh. He was also the star of the movie Sudden Death, if people uh, want to check that out. I told him he was the bright spot of that movie. I thought that movie was horrendous, but uh, having uh, Mark Kachowski and Jay Caulfield in it made it a little more tolerable. Uh, when I reached out to Mark, uh, I said, he said, uh, I really don't have any dirt on Dave. Uh, we only played the one season. I was an overager and he was a rookie. What I remember is that he was a great teammate and a very tough, solid defenseman. He was a great team player and had everyone's back if needed. Our whole team that year and all the years I played in Kamloops was like that tough and talented. Please tell Dave I said hello. So uh, what do you remember about Kachowski? Yeah, I remember Chowan actually is kind of funny. I think uh, Hitch wanted to test me because, I mean, I, I do question those statistics that were in Fort Saskatchewan. I don't know that many penalty minutes, and yeah. I don't know where they came from. You know, I, I, I do question that. I don't think I had that many, mm-hmm. but I think, uh, you know, Hitch wanted to put me to the test as soon as I got to camp, mm-hmm. and he did kind of tap Chow on the shoulder and said, okay, Go see what that guy's made of. And I think uh, to Charles, you know, tip my hat to him. I think I think he went a little easy on me. Yeah. I think, you know, it was just a test. Am I going to drop my gloves and am I going to rise to the challenge, right? Yeah. And, and you know, Mark's, Mark's comments are, are spot on. I mean, we had super talented guys. We had super tough guys. And we had all the guys in between that would just go to bat for each other. And that's why we had success. And we had, like... Like I said, Hitch could rein everybody in. He had amazing systems, uh, great power play, penalty killing systems, and forechecking that was relentless, right? That just kept teams on their heels. And we had the guys that were willing to, to do that and get in the corner and go get the puck for Brownie and Greg Hoggins and the talented guys, right? And we had guys that were big and talented like Robin Bawa, you know? And uh, it was great because this last February – uh, right before COVID fired up again, uh, the ownership of Kamloops, actually I got, you know what? I got the Jersey sitting, I got the Jersey sitting right here. It's awesome. They, they brought back the championship teams. So they brought back the, the WHL championship teams and the Memorial cup championship teams. Oh, wow. So they brought them all together. And if you could make it, you know, you had, you had to pay for your own travel and everything, but mm-hmm. I love going to see my billets. They were fantastic billets back then. They were wonderful people. I'm still in contact with them. So we went, uh, I went back and spent like three, four days and had a reunion and saw all those guys, saw Rudy, saw Kachowski, you know, so when you say, like, I'm not sure when you talk to Mark because I don't know if it was before then or. No, or it, was, it was this week. Once once we confirmed you were doing this, I sent him a message on uh, on Facebook. Yeah, cool. Okay, fair enough. Like, I still yeah. got Mark's number from that reunion. Yeah. And uh, text once in a while. So really good to hear from him. And, uh, yeah, if you're, if you're I, I can text him back and say, yeah, uh, I, uh, I heard your words. So. <laughs> Chow was a tough, tough guy too, right? Like yeah. just fought with both hands and knew how to handle himself. And, you know, another feared guy that we had in our lineup that just put guys at attention going, man, who's coming in to run me this, this shift? It's not Rudy. Or if it's not Mark, it's Doug Pickle and Darcy Norton and Lonnie Spink and guys like that, that, you know, the unknowns that still, you know, they're, they're Hitch's chain gang. Lots of people don't realize that when Hitch coached in Sherwood Park, so that's just like Fort Saskatchewan, mm-hmm. 
small subsidiary town uh, outside of Edmonton. Um, he had a bunch of midget players that he had great success with. And he brought those guys with him. And those names like Lonnie Spink and Len Mark, those guys were all part of that chain. He called them the chain gang. Mm. And they were part of the Cavalry success as well. I mean, you talk about some of the unknown guys, like another, a couple other names that stood out to me. Now, I know them from watching them on fight tape. So I know these names, but, but the, the regular, unless you're a fight nerd that watches all this stuff, a guy like Donnie Schmidt, uh, Greg Evtashevsky, um, even, you know, even guys like Dave Mackey got, got a sniff in the NHL, but he's mostly known as IHL guy. He was there. You mentioned Robin Bawa there. Um, there are guys like, go back to like Donnie Schmidt and the names that, that you mentioned that were super tough, but for one reason or another, never progressed up the ladder. And, uh, but as far as playing in the league at that time, they can pretty much go up against anybody. Yeah, absolutely. And I got, you know, I've got my list here. I've got a couple other names to throw out there. Uh, you know, they didn't play as many games. They were just joining the team or <clears throat> trying to make their chops in the WHL, but Robbie DeMaio, Oh, I was going to get to him because I love Robbie. Yeah, and for his yeah. size, you know him as an Islander. Mm -hmm. Top girls for his size, like yeah. he'll take on any big boy. Mm -hmm. And uh, Scott Daniels, another another yep. cheat, right? That came through the Kamloops that I and I ran into him. I think he joined us in Binghamton Rangers as well for a little bit. I think I have him written down. But yeah, those, you know, Darren Stoke, who is a absolute giant of a man got a Tabor, Alberta, just a big farm boy. And he's really uh, the same level as I, he's, he's a station captain here with the Edmonton fire department. He, I work with him, and it's great to see him a very humble, uh, but long professional career over in Europe as well. Did he, I think, did he get some games with the Portland pirates? Cause the name rings the bell. I think he might've played in Portland. I could be wrong, but he was with Pittsburgh. Okay. Uh, he got a handful of games and with the Muskegon, because Muskegon was their yeah. farm mm -hmm. at the time. Okay. So Darren, I think Darren played in Muskegon okay. and maybe another IHL team, because Pittsburgh might have moved their farm team. Did Cleveland. Cle I, well, yeah, I want to say Cleveland, but I'm not mm -hmm. sure if Darren had already jumped over to Europe when they went to Cleveland. Okay. Okay. I could be wrong. It wouldn't be the first time. So it might be the first time today, but not ever. So, uh, so one guy I want to ask you about, and I know that I told you I always focus on the tougher players, but I can't do an interview with someone that played for Kamloops without asking them about Rob Brown. I mean, the numbers that he put up down there, I mean, do you, do you just watch this guy carry the puck or do what he does and have your jaw drop every night? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I looked at, I think the 85, 86, I think he had 173 points, 176, something like that. And then I've got it written down here, the 86, yeah. 212 points in yeah. six games that's what i'm talking about what, what is it like to witness that that's that's three and a half games a point or three and a half points a game yeah and and it it was it was sometimes you're like oh that's just brownie being brownie yeah but then sometimes you're like is he doing that again like he <laughs> like he's getting five points tonight he's on he's on he's got six you, you turn around he's got he's got three goals and four assists mm -hmm. and you're like come on man <laughs> You know, it's it's just funny. Like Brownie's here in St. Albert. He's got a heavy hand in on hockey academies here. He's got run, hockey schools running here, three on three stuff, and very very much a giving back guy to the community. And uh, can't say enough about him. He's a very positive, happy guy, and very 
jolly just the way he was in junior. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> you know, Brownie had a but he had a target on his back. Yeah. You know, guys didn't want to be embarrassed. <clears throat> and when you embarrass somebody, well, guys get they get frustrated, they get mad. They want to take it out on the guy that embarrassed them. So Brownie had to have the spare share of fights and he had to he had to handle himself and protect himself. I mean, he had a lot of guys around to protect him, mm-hmm. but back then there was five on fives. Oh, and yeah. so Brownie, Brownie was going to get paired up with somebody. And, uh, you know, he, he was a good fighter. He knew how to handle himself. And, but he was, a, he was a very special talent. You know, I almost liken him, uh, again to, uh, John Mullen in, uh, Flint mm-hmm. when he was there. He like, I think he led the IHL in scoring. Okay. I, I had a brief stint that first yep. year in Utica. Yep. I was zip over mm-hmm. and John was there and he was the same type. Like he, he was a right-handed shot, but he had the patience and the, the ability to anticipate three steps ahead of everybody else on the ice. Yeah. And so the passes they would make were blind behind the back to a guy sitting back door. They would just have a tap in goal and it'd be like, nobody else could do it. They just, they just had that vision and had that skill. Yeah, that's like I I just look at his when I was looking at the stats from that year and it just uh, the 212 point season jumped out like that's that's just stupid numbers to put up. It, it, it's just crazy to think everything that guy touched was either going in the net or going to someone's stick who was, then was going to put it in the net. It just that I mean, that's just uh, touched by the hand of God to be able to play like that. Yeah, I'd, I'd be actually curious to see. Because I know he had games where he had seven, eight points. Yeah. I, I wonder if he was ever kept off the scoreboard. Yeah, that would be he, something to see. <laughs> I, I'm sure he was at some point, or maybe just had one goal, one goal, and be like, "Oh my God, Brownie, what's wrong with you?" Like one goal, right? Yeah. But it is crazy to think that that's what you're expecting of that guy to put out every night. It's uh, it's an outstanding statistic. Now, uh, looking at the uh, the fight card from that year, you already mentioned uh, you fought Kelly Buckberger. Uh, probably the two biggest names on your fight card from that rookie season were Bucky, who was at Moose Jaw, and uh, Mick Vakoda, who I think fought everybody down at, it, during his time in junior. Uh, do you remember fighting Mick, who would have been with Spokane at the time? He would have been with Spokane, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't quite remember that fight. I remember Kelly Buckberger's fight quite well. We went to it for quite a while. I I heard I did a pretty good number on his eye by the time the uh, fight was over. I heard it was closed at the end of it, but I can't remember Mick's. And, you know, the thing is with Mick, mm-hmm. he, a lot of guys, he has that reputation. He's a seatbelt, right? He wants to get in. He wants to throw guys down. He wants to grab you by the pants. He was... He didn't exchange that much, so you didn't know what to expect out of him. Like, was he going to throw or was he going to grapple? So the guy you didn't know what to expect coming going into the fight. Right, big strong guy, right? I mean, ran around and hit and everything that moved for sure. He was a menace on the ice because of it. Yeah, and then he could skate. Yeah, right. He was a big, big, fast guy, and so when you got a guy like that locked on the train tracks, uh, you better get out of the way or you're going to get hurt. <laughs> but I, I don't quite, I don't remember that fight too well. Mm-hmm. Uh. Might have been more like of a one, like a hanging on or kind of trying to tie each other up and make sure we're not going to get hurt by that one bomb. Yeah. Um, I, I think the funny thing about bringing up Spokane was 
If you looked at the, if you stood on the corner looking down the length of the boards, there wasn't one board that was straight. <laughs> That's amazing. It went like a zigzag mm. all the way down. And it was a place that didn't have any supports on the boards. So oh. if you go hit, it was a boomerang of fat whiplash and you would, you go into the boards and you get fly and you go like three feet out into the middle of the ice. And most guys would fall if they got hit hard enough into the boards. So you get fly. The guy that gave the hit was the one that ended up flying way out back into the middle of the ice. Well, that's a huge advantage for the, the home team because you figure they would know the boards better than everybody. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. It, it was a wacky rink. They, they, they weren't very uh, progressed into, I think, uh, building rinks and uh, the boards back then. In the- American city. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Now, one thing I noticed when, when you were on teams that made the playoffs, for the most part, you went on these long runs. So on the seasons where your teams that you were on made the playoffs, you didn't play. Obviously there were a couple of seasons where you didn't play double digit games, but there were a lot of years where you played a lot of hockey between the regular season and the playoffs. Now this year, um, your rookie year, you go to the Memorial cup. And I personally think the Memorial Cup is the hardest trophy to win in sports because you take any league and you're winning a couple of games or a couple of series, you win your league. You have to first win your league to even get to the Memorial Cup. And um, obviously, I, you know, like I said, I tried to look for, for different articles and, and information about it. And I, I'll just bring it up. Like if you, anything comes to mind, so your first round, you um, – you swept Seattle. What a lot of people may not know is these are best of nine series. They're not best of seven. So in order to win, you got to win five games. You beat Seattle in five games. Uh, you beat Portland in six games to win the West Division. Then you beat Medicine Hat in five games. So you guys were pretty dominant. And uh, after that Medicine Hat series, then you went on to the Memorial Cup. So do you have any memories from that playoff run, you know, pre-Memorial Cup? Yeah, I think I think one thing that stands out was that those best of nines. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason that was the year that we didn't have uh, exchanges with the East Division. Mm-hmm. So uh, fans, I think, were quite sick of seeing the teams because during the regular season, because we didn't cross over, I think we would have, would have played like Victoria and Spokane and Portland maybe 16 times each, like eight at home, eight away. And then you had to face them and play a best of nine. And the fans were like, they wanted a little bit of a different taste, I think. So yeah. I remember, you know, even my billets saying like, oh, here we go. We got to go watch Seattle again or Portland. And, it's, you know, that was probably tougher on, I think, the fans than it was as, as us as players. We we knew our opponents intimately yeah, because we saw them and played against them so much that year. Um, yeah, and, and it goes to show, like, the dominance that we did have. Uh Kitch had us prepared and ready to go, and he knew the value in not getting hurt and uh, saving your energy to get to the next round and be, uh, be at your best. So he wasn't going to let a game slide by, right? He knew the value in that. So he definitely that's that's why you see the dominance, but you also see the, the attention to detail and making sure that we were tuned in every game and playing our best. So you know, credit to him again, but also to the teams. And then uh, just uh, obviously you, you, you fell short in the Memorial Cup. Um, what was that? Now, I, I again, just like everything, 
um, the attention, the media attention, uh, there was no internet back then. The attention that the Memorial Cup gets nowadays uh, dwarfs what it did back then. But I would imagine the Memorial Cup was still a pretty big deal back then. And, and what, what do you remember about that whole experience? Yeah, it was a very exciting week. Uh, and not many people might not remember this story or this situation, but it, I do remember that Portland was hosting it. So a big deal when you can get 10,000 people in the building and help you pay some bills. Yeah. So we were a big rivalry and we were going to fill the building and our round Robin, I believe we ended up with the same record as Portland. Now to get to the next phase, it would have been your record against that team. And then it would have been goals for and goals against like, let's say you tied or whatever. Mm -hmm. So we beat Portland but they wanted another gate. So they forced us to play another game against Portland so they could get the gate money. Oh, no kidding. Okay. So instead of our record carrying us forward, so we played, I don't know, our last game against somebody. Mm -hmm. Then we had to play, I think on Thursday night. Then we had to play the Hull Olympics Friday night. So that's three games and three nights at the Memorial Cup Mm -hmm. that we lost in double or double overtime i think okay if we would have won that game we would have been playing the memorial cup at noon (laughs) no kidding four games in three and a half days and now the memorial cup's over two weeks and you got off and so (laughs) want to talk about tough and demanding that would have been what we were up against if we would have made it to that uh memorial cup final as well wow all right, well, that, that lends further credence to what I said. Thank God. And I still believe we had the best team there. Yeah, you guys are pretty good. I mean, I was looking at the rosters for the other teams. I, I, I have to agree with you. You guys were stacked. And I know that overtime goal was a just a crazy deflection off a D-man stick. The goalie went down. I think it was from just at the blue line or outside the blue line, and it was a wacky shot, and – one of those pure lucky things that went in and it was just a, a heartbreaker, definite heartbreaker. You certainly remember that. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that, yeah, you already mentioned you, you, um, you had talked to New Jersey, you talked to Minnesota pre-draft. Um, you didn't get drafted. Uh, what was it about New Jersey that you chose to sign with them? Well, they called me directly after the draft. Mm-hmm. And they said, Hey Dave, we took a chance. We, we knew you, we were on, you were on our radar. We were going to draft you, but we saw other teams weren't. So we thought, you know what? We can always just invite them down as a free agent. So let's let them slide through the draft. And I think it was uh, Marshall. His last name's Marshall. John, had- Marshall. Um, Nobody's the last name. I don't remember. Yeah, he's the head scout back then. So he made the phone call right after the draft mm-hmm. and said, we still want you to come down to uh, camp. And, uh, you know, try to earn a contract. So there was, there were, the offer was on the table and I was like, absolutely. So you can't talk about the devils, especially around that time without mentioning Lula Murillo. So, uh, at what point in your, uh, career with the devils, maybe even this first training camp while you're still a junior player, did you get to meet Lula Murillo and what were your impressions of him? Yeah, I think Lou was a pretty private guy back then. He worked behind the doors. 
you know, closed doors and uh, he wasn't very personable. Mm -hmm. He didn't make himself uh, available to many players. Mm -hmm. He might have to the bigger name players. Yeah. Something like me, I don't think, uh, you know, might have shaken his hand once and that was it. Um, You know, he's he's definitely a well-respected, well-renowned guy for what he's done for different organizations. Mm -hmm. Uh, for me, I, I, I don't think I had a chance with Lou. Yeah. Um, I had a conversation with, uh, John Cunniff after, uh, I think getting sent down and signing with Milwaukee. So John Cunniff was no longer the coach Mm -hmm. and, uh, he was coaching the U18 national U S national team. So we had an exhibition game against the Milwaukee Admirals when I was playing there. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I scored a goal. I played a great game. He met me down in the in the gallows of the uh, arena, and he just said, he goes, Dave, he goes, you got sent down? And he goes, I never even had the chance to talk to you. And he goes, but I loved you as a player and a person. And he goes, and if it was my choice, you would have been still on that team. Wow. So kind of nice to hear those words, you know, from the coach. Yeah. But uh, bigger people make bigger decisions. And I know Lou is a very, he was very adamant about college hockey players, yes. you know, 23 years in Providence. He promoted him. He did, he wasn't a junior hockey fan and, uh, that's what he wanted on his roster. And it, it paid, I paid the price for that as well as bringing in the three Russian defensemen. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. that was, I knew I was, you know, the writing's on the wall then. <laughs> Trade me, get get me out of here. I'm I'm not going to see the jersey lineup again. So that 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 was writing on the wall for me as well back then. Yeah, and, and jumping ahead a little bit, uh, a name that I interviewed on my previous show, someone who I'm pretty good friends with, uh, the guy you were traded for, Brent Severin, uh, similar position, physical defenseman, and uh, Brent pretty much did everything he could do at the Utica level during his time with New Jersey, but it was just a very very difficult lineup to crack. I mean, Devils were always. Uh, defense first and they always had good defensemen and um, you know I'm not saying that Seve was going to displace a Ken Danico or a Bruce Driver but um, for how he played in Utica he definitely could have broke their top six and I'm sure during your time in Utica there were times where you could have been a a third pair defenseman or even move up to the second pair Um, but you know he had mentioned if you're it really is difficult to crack the devil's defense core and like you say um, Lou loves the college players, uh, but it was just something when you, when you're talking about it now, it just reminded me of stuff that Sevy had said as well. Yeah, it was kind of it's funny that you know Sevy is a local boy, and him and I trained and uh, got ready for uh, training camps here in in uh, Edmonton at the university. There was a whole flock of pro guys that used to <clears throat> get together. It was a well-run camp. I think it was called Potential One Hundred. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the likes of half of the Oiler team and any other pro player that lived in Edmonton uh, made up the other part of the lineup. And there was good, great practices, great scrimmages, and everybody was getting ready. And Sevy was one of them. So him and I knew each other before the trade. And, yeah, he was a very like-minded defenseman, a top guy, and kept yeah. himself in fantastic physical shape. He was a specimen. He still is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> you, you see him on TV, his, his guns are popping out of <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some of these, some of the TV guys have to wear the the slender fitting suit. Uh, Sevy doesn't need that; he can just wear a regular suit. It looks like he's got softballs in there. Yeah, I think I think he's supposed to wear a fifty four, but he's wearing a forty eight just to show the <laughs> pipe. <up. laughs> 
You gotta stretch the streams out. I'm going a little. Yeah, cold. there you go. <laughs> but he's not fat. He's just he's right, just a right. Yeah, but he, I'd be surprised if he hasn't split some of the seams out of his uh, suit jackets on TV. Oh, yeah. Someone get him angry. He'll be like the Incredible Hulk, you know? And, you know, going going back to, like, chances in the NHL, too, as well. Like, it's so fickle. You got to have that right guy in the right place going to bat for you. And, and that's the thing. Like, John Cunniff was willing to go to bat for me, but mm-hmm. I wasn't loose style. Yeah. And, you know, uh, being on a one-way contract and a two-way contract. People do not understand that it is a business and they're not going to send somebody down for an exchange of a guy who's on a two-way and pay a guy a quarter of a million dollars to play in the minor. But I mean, you know, it's funny. I've got to use the the word uh, quarter of a million dollars, but back then, you know, some guys were making 250 and and I'm making $27,000 in the minors. Mm -hmm. But they're not they're not bringing me up no. and they're not going to waste that $250,000 salary guys in the minors and that you know that's that's a big difference it's a business yeah yeah that, that's part of the grind of making it um so do you remember anything from that first training camp you're going in there just you know first year out of the WHL now you're in that first training camp i always always like to ask this cuz i i picture like the teenager going into a pro camp and you see the grizzled veterans and, and people like that. Like what were your impressions at first training camp? Yeah. I mean, it's you're you're overwhelmed, right? You're so yeah. excited. You're there's your chance at, at doing something. Well, whatever that is mm-hmm. like making the jump from the dub to the NHL. So, uh, I guess a lot of guys are in the same boat because mm-hmm. we kind of, put you in a secondary dressing room with all the junior guys and all the college guys that have got invited or drafted and you're kind of on your own and you're not with the big guys. Uh, you slowly get mixed or integrated in, in with them through training camp. So, you know, I didn't, and it, and back then, like I'm following Western division teams that the Oilers are always facing or, or the Oilers themselves. We didn't get to see like TV wasn't back then like it is now right. and you have access to all these games and all these names and all these guys you want to watch and you know so I didn't really know quite much about john mcclain and kirk mullers and uh, the bruce drivers and ken danicos right you right. knew them sporadically but those names weren't household names out west because they were eastern teams and we just didn't see them and we didn't play them you know and we just didn't have the tv coverage either right and plus they didn't hit their stride yet you know they weren't they weren't the devils yet. They were still sort of a a lower end team at that point. Anyway, it wasn't like the, like say those bigger names. When then you add guys like Martin Brodeur and Scott Stevens, and then they become the devils that everyone associates with. They were still trying to find their way at that point as well. Well, I think I think it maybe it might be. <laughs> you're you're forgetting the key term from Wayne Gretzky, the oh, Mickey, Mickey Mouse, Mouse. Organi- <laughs> organization. So. When you hear Gretzky say that, I'm like, I'm going to New Jersey Devils. Like, what am I getting myself into, right? <laughs> yeah, I remember those headlines. <laughs> yeah, pretty pretty damaging words, I believe, for their organization there for a while. Yeah, you don't want to hear that. You could hear it from anyone else at the time, but you don't want to hear Wayne Gretzky say it. So, That's um, true. That's true. Another player that you played with that second year that I uh, I sent a message to, he replied back, and uh, is Glenn Mulvena. 
And uh, he said that you guys only played together the one season when he was traded at the deadline. Um, pretty, pretty quiet guy, good dude, and tough as nails. So I'm starting to notice a pattern here. I got some some uh, better, uh, more juicy stories coming up later. But uh, but what do you remember about playing with Glenn? Mulvey was a very slippery, fast player. He was elusive. Um, yeah, I'm surprised he didn't go on to play more. Yeah. In all honesty, uh, he was he was definitely hard nosed enough and had a good skill set. Um, but I think stepping into the Kamloops lineup was very difficult <laughs> during those that era, right? Yeah. So he probably could have been a second liner on any other team in the dub, but he's a fourth liner just trying to make the make the grade in Kamloops at that time because we had such a talented team. And uh, one other guy I want to ask you about. Uh... Ended up with a pretty good NHL career, I'd say. Uh, Mark Recchi, uh, similar to Rob Brown, like when you're watching a guy like Rob Brown, what was it like watching Mark Recchi as a junior? Yeah, and, and, you know, it's kind of funny. I was going through those statistics, and I I think I thought, like I thought Recchi was there for the two years, but I think I only caught him on my second yeah. year there. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, he was, a, what he was, he was a bowling ball. Yeah. He was a, he was a fast moving bowling ball. So it didn't matter if he was going 50 miles an hour and he hit the boards, he'd bounce off and keep going the, the other direction. And if somebody hit him, he would just bounce off him, keep going. Yeah. And if he went and hit somebody, he just bounce on just like <laughs> endless supply of energy, uh, great skill. Obviously he just continued to hone it throughout his NHL career. But back then I just thought he was, uh, he was a guy that just, went everywhere on the ice and hit everything and had the skill set to score goals. It was, uh, he was a very active player for sure. And, uh, looking at, uh, the fight you had that second year, not a lot of household names for, for people who only know, uh, NHL. Uh, one name that jumped out at me was Troy Pohl. Cause I know he had, uh, I think was, there were three of the Pohl brothers. I think, uh, uh, Dean, you and we were talking about them once. He's like, I, he's, he basically said that he thought they thought they were the Hanson brothers, but, uh, but I, I know that name again from the fight tapes. Um, you fought Dave McClay also, I think he had fought him the year before Donnie Menard, uh, Mike Hawes and Jody Gonek. Uh, any of those, uh, fights ring a bell? Any, uh, anything memorable about those? I remember the, I remember the pool brothers. Cause yeah. I, I believe I might've went to Lethbridge camp. Uh, I think Don Chapman was the head scout mm-hmm. back then. I think he ended up in the Ranger organization for many years. But he uh, he invited me there, and I think we were all just staying in, I don't know if it was a curling rink or a bowling alley, and there was just cots everywhere, and it was just mayhem. And the <laughs> three pool brothers were, of course, on uh, cots together, and they were the... Yeah, they were they were the gong show act that you would have expected three brothers playing <laughs> hockey to, to be. Yeah, um, I think Rich and Ron Sutter Sutter were there at the same time, and you know sometimes you you'd play and then you'd go watch the next scrimmage and see what was going on, and those guys would get into stick swinging incidences with each other, and you're just like, are these guys for real? Like, <laughs> and, uh, you can see why they all were in the NHL, very competitive people. Yeah. Um, the one, the one fight that stands out was Dave McClay because I was lucky enough to get a good punch in on him and I hurt him pretty bad. Yeah. I split his lip 
and it went all the way up beside his nose. So he had to have like, I think it was like 20 or 40 stitches inside and out. Oh. He was bleeding quite a bit. He, mm-hmm. you know, it was pretty messy on the, on the ice. And so that's kind of where I got my name in juniors because of slap shot. Mm-hmm. When you look at, uh, there's a scene there where Dave, he wants to stick up for his teammate and he goes in there and he gets his lip cut and split up and yep. you gotta go get the killer. And then like, the one guy's like, Dave's a mess. <laughs> well, because Dave McClay had the same name, yeah. right? <laughs> it was Dave's a killer, me, and yeah. Dave McClay's a mess. <laughs> so guys to this day from my junior years there, they still call me killer. Well, I had a couple other nicknames that uh, I was able to scrounge up from the newspaper articles, which we'll get into those later. Um, so then you yeah, playoffs again, a long playoff run, not as long as you'd like, I imagine. Uh, first round, you swept Victoria. And then in the second round, uh, your old rivals, uh, Portland Winterhawks, they beat you 5-3 to, uh, to finish up your junior career. Um, what, what do you remember about those series? Yeah, I think uh, it was just kind of – the changing of the guards where Portland started to get guys in their lineup that were really starting to develop the Ray Podlosky's, uh, Dave Archibald, mm-hmm. some really talented hockey players. Right. So they were starting to match us for, uh, talent to talent. And, uh, I think that's pretty, pretty much what the difference was. They just, they had, they had, they had the, the horses that could compete with us. So they were a good team as well back then. So, after your junior your junior career is over, now you're going into your your second training camp with New Jersey. Now, I guess my question would be that first training camp, you you I guess you go in, you're trying to take everything out of it that you can, but I guess you know you're going back to junior. Um, especially if you didn't think that, I'm sure once you got there and you saw how things were going, like say especially Lou loves the college players, chances are you're going back to junior. Now your second camp do you go into it with, with a different mindset because now you figure you go in, you have a pretty good camp is the goal say, well, I'll go to Utica. You don't, maybe you don't want to go to the East coast league. How do you approach that second training camp? Well, I think, it, I don't know back then if you could even go to the AHL, you had to be 20. Okay. Well, it was either, it was either New Jersey or back to junior. So I, you know, I was, you know, obviously there's always high hopes mm-hmm. that you're, you're thinking you're going to make a team, but I'm thinking I was realistic where I was in my development mm-hmm. saying, you know, just go there and impress and make the best impression you can for upcoming years. Mm-hmm. Uh, pretty easy to know that if I'm going back to Kamloops, I'm in great hands, yeah. you know, successful organization, great coach, uh, great support system there. My billets were phenomenal. And uh, so you know, I'm not too worried about it. Yeah. At the same time, you, you certainly get the hairs on the back of your neck up to to compete and and want to want to make a team, right? That's in the back of your mind. That's always what you're you're wanting to do. You want to play in the NHL. That's what you're sacrificing and punishing yourself for, and going through all the hard training. And and it's like I I want to make this team. So nothing else is really in your mind mm-hmm. other than trying to make that team. Now with uh with new jersey now you're getting into these rookie games and i remember you know the islanders some of their rookie games there's a a historic rookie game between them and the rangers that if i could 
somehow find my way to get that videotape, I'd kill to have it. But now you're in Jersey, and I'm sure, you know, for people that don't know, a lot of times the rookie games are played in the afternoon and the the, uh, NHL exhibition games were played that night and the rookie games a lot of them were closed off to the public but you're generally playing the islanders the rangers the flyers in those rookie games and like you had said you're looking there you're looking to make an impression and i I imagine those rookie games were just absolute mayhem yeah and and i guess another another team that stands out is uh hartford whalers because i think i i fought trula a couple times at least in training camp Mm -hmm. uh you know there were some pretty big boys playing those games, yeah. you know, still trying to make the, the lineup in at the NHL level. So lots of five on fives. Um, yeah, it was a different game back then. Mm-hmm. Right. So you knew you were, as soon as you got the puck, you were going to get hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, as soon as somebody else touched a puck, your job was to eliminate them from that puck. So if you didn't finish your check, you weren't playing. It was, it was as simple as that back then. So, very physical, very tough, lots of fights. You know, you're trying to prove your, yourself not only as a player, but as a fighter. So, and lots of guys were thrown into that mix and they didn't want, they didn't want to be right. You know? So yeah, it, it weeds guys out pretty quick for sure. And it's, it's noticeable. And the guys that are watching those games, tabulating scores and watching who's engaged and who do, who doesn't want to be on the, the middle of it wants to be on the outskirts. Well, they're, they're going to be pretty early cuts. How'd those fights with Cherla go? It went well. Yeah. Yeah. He was willing to exchange, but he's yeah. got a small reach to me. And yeah. that's one thing I always had. I think I always had a really long reach for my height and I used it to my advantage. So I was always able to, I think, keep keep him out away from me and still exchange with him. One one thing that uh again, people like myself that like the, the violent aspect of the how the game used to be, uh those American League teams, everybody, everybody had, you know, 30, 35% of the teams were guys that could handle themselves. And uh, when you're in Utica your first year, you had 179 penalty minutes, 73 games. You played with some pretty tough guys. Before I get to those guys, um, one thing I want to ask you, that year you scored your first professional goal. Do you happen to remember uh, remember who it was against? Oh, geez. Well, well I, could, I think I, okay, I, I do remember my first – point and that was against the rochester americans okay but i think my first goal was against razor daryl ray is that right oh no 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 sorry his last goal because he hurt himself okay on the play and i don't think he ever played again oh wow okay i think i might have had the last goal against him which okay. i thought was comical both being blazer <laughs> alumni yeah <laughs> No, but I, I I don't know who my first goal would have been against. Okay, yeah, I don't know either, because uh, obviously NHL stuff is a lot easier to find than American League stuff back then. Uh, so I was just I, I I try to be well rounded here. I just don't want it to be about the physical play. If you light the lamp, uh, I was just curious if you knew who your first pro goal was against. But the the Daryl Ray story is probably an even better story than the first one than what your first goal probably was. Yeah, and I think I I even remember which was kind of comical was. I think I went down in front of the net for a one-timer and against Daryl and I teed off on one and my stick completely blew up. So the blade went flying in the air and I think that's what he was watching. And he didn't realize that I still got enough of the puck Mm -hmm. 
to get a shot on net. And so it was, it wasn't a dribbler, but it definitely wasn't like the hardest of shots. And so I kind of remember being how comical that was of a goal that it was just like, Oh God, you know, like watch the puck, Daryl. Razor. <laughs> Don't watch the stick flying in the air. <laughs> uh, one of the guys I want to ask you about from Utica is a guy that you spent a lot of time with on that blue line. Uh, very tough guy. Ended up having a nice NHL career. I think maybe it should have started before it did. Uh, I mean, a guy that definitely paid his dues in the American League. I think you know I'm going to say Jamie Huscroft. What was it like playing with Jamie down in Utica? Yeah, I mean, Jamie and I became good friends because we're the same same player, right? Yeah. So, I mean, Jamie was uh, a really team-based guy. Uh, you know, we were down in the minors grinding away at our, ourselves and – yeah, good teammate, you know, he'd do anything for the team. And I think, uh, you know, Tommy McGee really liked him. So I think he had a little bit of a one-up there. And, uh, yeah, he, he definitely worked very hard at improving his game and his foot speed and his ability to to make it to the NHL and to stay in the NHL. He was a very, very hardworking guy and deserving that he got the time that he did. One of the players that I want to ask you about, and and again, I think if uh, there, I think it seemed like every team had a player like this, uh, not a very big player, but very tough uh, and a lot of fun to watch. Uh, Alan Heppel. What do you remember about playing with Alan Heppel? Yeah, you know, and it's funny. I've got I have other names written down too here, and Joan. It's like, uh, you know, Al was, you know, the season bets that we had back then were. Murray Brumwell, mm-hmm. <clears throat> we were very good friends with him and his wife. You know, they're living in Billings, Montana. Pat Conacher, probably one of the classiest guys I've ever met in pro hockey. Mm-hmm. Uh, Steve DeJura, mm-hmm. you know, and it's kind of funny. You mentioned, you know, there was, you know, 30% of the guys in the AHL were tough back then. But when you think of guys like Steve DeJura, who's like five foot five, five six, Pat Conacher, maybe five seven, five eight, like, those guys took a beating, man, mm. and they took it. They were seasoned vets, and boy, they were they were hard and tough guys, and they definitely were great teachers to us young guys stepping in as a twenty year old in the AHL because we had lots that year, mm. and and showing us the ropes and going, this is what it's about, boys. Like it's every day and it's a grind, and those guys earned their chops and uh, their respect. I think from so many other players and knowing what they were like to play with and play against. Uh, another One veteran, and, and, and by the way, talk about Steve DeJura, um, a guy who, you know, nowadays people talk about racist racism and everything. And I know there was a, I think an incident when Steve was with uh, Maine where I think Mike Milbury actually, uh, I don't remember the whole story, but uh, I, I, oh, I think it was one of the, uh, they were on the road and um, another, the organist played sort of like an Asian sort of thing, and Milbury lost his shit, and I think he actually tried to fight the organ player. Uh, so, you know, I'm sure that Steve dealt with the, his share of on the on the ice stuff as well. So there's toughness where you drop the gloves, and then there's toughness where you have to put up with a lot of crap. So I just felt like, you know, a guy like Steve Tejura, you, br- you brought him up. I probably should have, but, uh, you know, I'm sure he dealt with a lot of shit that he had, to, he had to just turn the other cheek to. So there's a different kind of toughness there, too. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a mental and emotional toughness that even a person shouldn't have to endure. Right. Of course. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, another, another player would be that the following year that I've got written down is, you know, Claude Bill Grain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Claude, you know, I don't think he experienced it with when I was visibly there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm still in contact with Claude. He yeah. lives in Calgary, close by. Mm-hmm. Uh, great guy. Right. And, uh, but I know he's had his stories. Yeah. I know see, he's been vocal about it and he experienced it back then too. And that's really, uh, it hurts hurts to hear that 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 guys had to suffer that way through through things like that yeah yeah two classy guys too you know what i mean like so undeserving of that kind of negative attention and yet they're such really great people no you're 100 percent right uh a veteran that you played with that year in utica uh i think most people probably remember him with the rangers is uh steve richmond what do you remember about richmond <laughs> the general <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes the general uh yeah, he was he was another excellent mentor, right? I mean, uh, stay at home, tough, uh, knowledgeable, knew all the ropes on the road, where to eat, what bars to go to. Did <laughs> <laughs> actually, but uh, you know, it was uh, yeah. The general and I, I played a couple years with him, and I I ended up going that first year with him, Jamie. Hushcroft, mm-hmm. Dan Dillianidis, our goalie, yeah, and Al Stewart to uh, Flint, yeah. Right, mm-hmm. we skipped over. There was, I don't think that ever happened. It was a one-time deal, and never they because they found a loophole in between the American League and the International League. Okay, and so the International League was allowed to pick up players from the A, and Jer- they asked Jersey, and Jersey was like, "We're not in the playoffs," so they asked us, "Well, do you guys want to go play?" And I'm like. I'm 20 years old and I'm getting asked to go play hockey in the playoffs. So yeah. I was like, giddy up, let's go. Mm-hmm. Right? Absolutely. So great experience. Uh, hands down, should have won the Turner Cup that year. Mm-hmm. And guys let it slide. We had a 2 nothing lead in, against Salt Lake there in the final. And guys started to get complacent and a little bit loosey-goosey. And it was really unfortunate because it was, it was definitely a championship that was in our grasp. And I thought we blew it. It was nothing that Salt Lake did to uh, defeat us. I think we we shot ourselves in the foot there, which is unfortunate because uh, it would have been a nice nice thing to have uh, under your belt, like have a ring and uh, the, the championship. Yeah, especially at, especially at tw- as a twenty year old, it's not uh, wouldn't be the worst thing in the world, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And you got you know, we talked about iconic names like John uh, or uh, Waddell was there, and Rick Dudley was the coach. Mm-hmm. Bob, uh, Bob Bob Fleming. There's another the guy. hammer. <laughs> and Chris McSorley and Ronnie Stern. I mean, that lineup there was full of tough, tough individuals. Tell me about the hammer, because I think I think most people, if they go on YouTube, I think the two fights they see are him and uh, Gunnar Tomlinson, where uh, he, he does very well. And then he just, from what I heard, he's he's a real character on the ice and a real sweetheart off the ice. Uh, what do you remember? And it was only a short time that you were with Fleming, but what do you remember about him? I, I thought the whole I thought the whole team was offside. <laughs> Every one of them. They, it was just uh, yeah, with duds at the helm, it, it was mayhem. Mm-hmm. It was complete mayhem. But when we got on the ice together, we all performed. Yeah, and guys guys knew their role and guys knew what they needed to do, and we pulled it together. And but yeah, Bob was exactly that. Just a chatterbox, you know. <laughs> 
Chris McSorley. I, I don't know if he was going to spear a guy or cross-check him in the head or what his next move was going to be, but it kept everybody on guard. Mm-hmm. And then we had the team that could back it up. Yeah. And we taught uh, Todd Hawkins. There's another yeah, guy. Well, that definitely. Up, mm-hmm. You know, big, big right hand on him. So, yeah, it was it was a fun experience. Um, and, yeah, it was it was a nutshell with with all those guys that I that I mentioned it was it was tons of fun and Flint and Flint was just a party town yeah it was just a it was just a great time to be 20 years old playing pro hockey and having the time of my life Flint was a really cool experience for sure glad I went well that's great um so three other players I want to ask you about with Utica and all all guys who saw uh, time with the Devils, one more significant than the other two. Uh, you mentioned Al Stewart. Um, other two guys were Troy Crowder, who you spent time with there, and uh, and David Maley. Uh, what do you remember about those three guys? Well, Mills wasn't there all, uh, much. I know I looked at the game count. Mm-hmm. I think he was in about eight or nine games one year, and then maybe yeah. 20 the next, something like that. But Yo, Dave was a real honest guy, mm-hmm. a really nice guy. He even he even took me under his wing uh, when I was in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. You know, took me out, showed me restaurants. You know, and yeah, he was he was very uh, took over that mentor role. Um, but you know, tough lefty, mm-hmm. right? I don't think a lot of guys in the minors were willing to uh, take him on. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, an honest honest guy, really hardworking. Good shot, good four-checker, and, you know, ultimate professional. So I I really like Dave. I got along with him really well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Stewie, did you say ask me about Stewie? Yeah, Stewie and Troy Crowder. Stewie. (laughs) Oh, boy. He lived lived seven lives all in one, that guy. (laughs) Yeah. He lived the hardest life, and, you know, then he – flipped over to the other side and he went all religious and then he flipped back again. And Oh boy, he was a, he was a character. I live, I actually, I was living with Johnny Walker at the time Mm -hmm. and Al got sent down. So he had no place to go, but we had a three bedroom place and we just said, Al come live with us. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I did. Yeah. I didn't know Al, you know, and got to know him quite well. And he was a, he was a very, very sincere man, Mm -hmm. but Probably one of those guys that maybe if you looked him up, you might see a lot of fights where he loses, Mm -hmm. but he had so many fights. There's a lot. He won. Yeah. And pound for pound, a guy that was maybe 5'11", 185 pounds, and he took on every heavyweight there was. Yep. He was a tough as nails kind of guy, man. Like tough as nails. Yeah. He he was, he was part of that Prince Albert squad with Bomber and uh, Manson too. Yeah, that's right. Like, mm-hmm. he took his lumps, man, but he mm-hmm. gave them. Yeah. Hard, man. I think he made Don Cherry's, uh, those hardest hits a couple times. I think mm-hmm. when he ran over Sinisalo there in Philadelphia, he mm-hmm. literally hit him like a freight train. But, uh, yeah, he was he was an underrated tough guy, yeah. I guess you could do. But, you know what I mean? When you play with a guy, you know the intimate details of how tough he is and fighting through injuries and fighting the big boys when I don't think he should have been. Right. But he still did. He took him he took all comers on. Yeah, he would have been the perfect compliment for for Troy Crowder the year that Crowder went on his big run with New Jersey. I think Al was there riding shotgun. That's a that's a pretty good one two tandem. You got one guy to take care of the heavies and one guy to take care of the the light heavies and the middleweights. Yeah, for sure. And uh 
I guess uh, can't can't go without mentioning George McVie there. It's, it's oh, he was coming up next year. I I was going to bring up George next year. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, I think yeah. So Troy only played. I think that. Like that 87, 88 was, I think, one or three games. Yeah, or he played only a couple of games. But I figured, you know, since you played with him more than that, if you had, you know, just encompass being a teammate is. Yeah, I kind of had him written down more as the next year, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in 88, 89, that's why I'm kind of looking ahead at those those lists of mm-hmm. names there. But, yeah, Troy was a very, very quiet, humble guy. Mm-hmm. You know, he was not brash and loud by any means i think i think he was true heavyweight that didn't like fighting yeah you know he had to be goaded into it but he was so good at it that what else could he do yeah you know that's that that's that was his role and that and because he was so good at it that it's all that was expected of him Mm. and uh tough tough position to be in right like it's not like there are some guys that like are really geared that way mentally and they they want to fight um troy's not that way right and then i think that's a tough position to be in and i think there's there's more heavyweights uh and, and fighters back in the day that <clears throat> really are 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 that way they're the nicest guys off the ice and on the ice they have to turn that switch and it's it's not an easy switch to uh to turn on right right um so I thought I I thought I had transferred it from my phone to my uh, sheets here, but I didn't. But I did check in with David Maley and uh, asked him what he remembered about you. Uh, he said, from memory, Dave was a great kid when he came to Devil's Camp. Fun to be around. Played with him when I got sent down in 87 after missing curfew during my first training camp. That's a story in and of itself. Anyway, Dave was a big, tough kid that showed up for his teammates, super laid back off the ice. Please say hi to him for me. And uh, he said he thinks that uh, his brother Brennan played with you more than he did. Yeah, and, you know, it's funny. I, I did see Brennan's name there at the bottom of the list. I don't – do you have – like, I don't – I didn't pull him up. I just made notes of – Yeah, uh, yeah. Right? But I don't – I don't think Brennan was only, like, around, like, the 25-game mark or th- 35, something like that? Or did he play more that year? You know what? I'm going to tell you right now. Let's see. Yeah. Uh, Brennan Maley, where is he? Actually, he may have not even been that year. He might have been the following year because the only Maley I see that for this year is Dave, and it was just those handful of games. Yeah, and I, so. and I remember going through the team list prior to uh, us talking, and I think Brennan was quite a ways down. Mm-hmm. Well, game, you know, it obviously kind of goes by games played. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if he was there that much that year, but I want to guess 25 to 35 games mm-hmm. is that. And you know, another guy that we have mentioned, and I and I got his name written down just because mm-hmm. uh, 87, 88 Devils. Um, I played with his brother in Kamloops, and uh, he was an ex-Blazer himself, or he might have even been a, a Kamloops Oiler. He might have been before it turned Oiler to Blazer. Is Gordy Mark? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, Gordy and I played. It was. It was. It kind of. It kind of makes you feel sometimes like, you know, you belong. And I think Gordy and I were paired. He was a right-handed shot, big, long reach like me. And I think we had a ten-game stint where we only had one goal, five-on-five scored against us. Wow. Okay. And and we were like, you know, Gord, like. 
like we just we just gelled. We played super well together. Nobody nobody got in front of the net with the two of us out there. He was a bigger man than me. And uh, yeah, we just we shut everything down, and we were playing against top lines. And you just think, you know, if we can do this here, I'm sure we can do it elsewhere. Yeah. But uh, that opportunity only only comes around once in a while. But Gordy's a great guy. He's from Irma. It says Edmonton, but him and his brother Len mm-hmm. uh, were from Irma, Alberta, farming community out there. And him and his family had me out there during the summers, and I'd help them pick rocks and shoot gophers. Oh, not bad. Sounds like a pretty fun summer. <laughs> <laughs> Salt of the earth people, right? Farmers, and you know how hardworking they are. And oh, yeah. that's, they are—they uh, were great family. Really enjoyed them. Yeah, for for someone like myself who loves to eat, I really appreciate the hard work the farmers put in. So, <laughs> uh, how'd you like playing for Tommy McVie? Uh, I didn't. Yeah, <laughs> you know you, that's tough because you had him for several years. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I the the thing for me is this, and I, I I could tell you a lot of things, and you know how you could go back and talk about mental abuse and emotional abuse and, uh, you know, a bully, you know, I think stepping out of Hitchcock's realm Mm -hmm. into my first year pro and knowing what a great coach Hitch was and having expectations when you step to pro, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll choose my words wisely here, Mm -hmm. but you know, Tommy McVie was draconian and archaic at best. Um, For example, we would have two and a half hour full contact practices. Wow. And I mean, all week long. Wow. And we would have 45 minute contact pregame skates and other teams would come into our rink because the home team has the first pregame skate first. Yeah. And you do your pre-skate and those guys, you know, whenever, obviously buddies, you know, guys that are in the WHL and the Ontario hockey league, like they all make pro and, they have previous teammates yeah. and they'd watch us do a pregame skate and they'd go talk to us and go, what the hell are you guys doing? Yeah. And we were like, that's a pregame skate. They're like, that's a practice for us. Holy. Wow. So you want to talk about getting ground into the ground, like raw hamburger, like just in that machinery that, you know, a guy doesn't know any better. doesn't know how to develop skill. And then, you know, because I, I know what a good coach does, they develop skill to prepare you for the next level. Yeah. That's, that is your job. You know, that I, I even think about that when now I'm coaching my son. Mm-hmm. I want you guys to get to the next level, the next highest level. Not because you're older, but, you know, instead of playing A level, I want you double A or triple A. Mm-hmm. How do I get you there? How do I run my practices? What are the things I say to you to develop you? And... There was just none of that. Mm-hmm. There was none of that. It was four years of punishment. Wow. You know, and I just I just expected more as I turned pro and thought there would be some development there. And it's, Dave, dump the puck in and go fight and clear the front of the net. Jeez. That's your job. That's the only way you're going to make it. So live with it. And, you know, that's what Jamie was told and mm-hmm. other guys like myself. And... You know, I, I get that I had a certain role and I get that I had a certain skill set, mm-hmm. but good God, what would have happened? And, and, and for example, look at my four years in New Jersey and look at me when I get traded to Quebec yeah. 
And I go, Claude Joydoin in Halifax. And he goes, Dave, you're a great defenseman. Here's the puck. Run the number one power play. And I get 10 goals and 42 assists. Yeah, that was a great season. But it's because of the coach. Yeah. Because of the role I was given. It's because I was allowed to develop as a hockey player. Mm -hmm. That was his job. So, you know, it's a pretty easy comparison, isn't it? Yeah. When you ask that question, you know, I had my gun loaded, but I'm being very, very demure in my delivery. I get it. And and another example is this. I'm there my first year pro. Tommy sets up. He I go, you know, Tommy, my, my mom and dad want to come down, you know, there's get flights and what kind of hotel do we get uh feel that and he set that up for me. He knows they're in town. Uh, I take I take warm-up and I'm a regular in the lineup. And he comes in and taps me and goes, you're out. Oh, God. So I'm about to play my first game pro in front of my mom and dad, who spent all that money, and I'm a regular lineup. So I know Pat Conacher, Burry Brumwell, went into his office and was like, what the F are you doing? Yeah. You know his parents are here. And he's like, I'm the boss. It's my way, the highway. Get out of my office. Wow. Those guys went and tried to go to bat for me, tried to get in that game. And I'm sitting up there with my mom and dad in the stands, embarrassed as hell, going, Mom, Dad, I've been, I think I played 73 games that year. I missed six with a back injury and one because he wanted to prove a point that he's the boss. Jesus, that's horrible. So, wow. I can't give you another yeah. example of, of the kind of mentality he had. And that's, <laughs> that's the I don't think you need to say anything else. I, I think that that one story pretty much sums it up. So, um, so you mentioned Chris McSorley a few times, but according uh, to the uh, Drop Your Glove site, that was your first official professional fight when he was with New Haven before you guys ended up being teammates. Do you remember that? No, I don't. <laughs> you know, that's <laughs> right. Like, it's so long ago. Yeah. So many battles. So many games played, and you know, I do. You know, I I do remember Chris being in New Haven. Yeah, mm-hmm. I do remember that. I do remember playing against him. Yeah, but I don't remember fighting him. All right. Well, this this next incident you may remember. I got this from one of the newspapers. You're playing against Rochester. Uh, Kevin Kerr. You and Kevin Kerr received two minutes each for roughing. And from the newspaper reports, he kept yapping at you the entire two minutes in the penalty box. And apparently when the penalties expired, you went out and absolutely lost your mind. And uh, Jim Hofford and Bob Halkinis got involved. And Halkinis actually came off the bench, was suspended six games. Uh, do you remember that entire melee? Well, I do remember Kevin Kerr running his mouth off. <laughs> off the ice, so that's no surprise. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and he was one of those guys that just knew how to get under your skin. And, you know, I... I had, I had points to make, like back then you created your own, like, I guess in the words of like, you know, a Stevie Richmond, he's like, Dave, you're going to make your own space on the ice, Mm -hmm. which means you make guys pay when they come near you. So that gives you one more split second with the puck to make a better play. That makes you a better hockey player. So make your space. 
So some guy like that's going to be chirping at me and instigating me. Well, then I have to make my point mm-hmm. and I'm going to make it to the point where, you know, by then I'd had enough fights in junior to, to think if, if I win this handily, then more guys give me room. Yeah. And then that's how you have to look at it. That's what you were trying to do is create space for yourself. Doesn't matter if you're a forward or a defenseman. Mm-hmm. And you're also trying to protect all your other teammates. Right. So yeah, I do remember it. Um, and I do remember Kevin Kerr definitely getting under my skin on numerous occasions. <laughs> and, and you know what? You weren't the first and I bet you weren't the last. Absolutely not. <laughs> I was the tripper. <laughs> So the earliest fight of yours that I have on video and that, you know, people get used to seeing you wearing maybe number two, number 27, uh, 72 in the IHL. Uh, you're actually wearing, I believe, number 28 in Utica at this point. You fight uh, Rod Dahlman, uh, one of the another PA boy there. Uh, he was messing with uh, Dan Dillianides. And, uh, you know, again, just say doing your job, come in and intervene. Um, Rod, real tough player, real tough guy. I don't know if you remember that one. No, but you know, I wanted to ask you because I know you mentioned this yeah. that you have some fight tapes yeah. that I don't think I have. So if you can send me a thumb drive or like, you know, some things aren't transferable, right? Like are, are they on VHS? Well, here's the deal. I won't even edit this out because I get to make fun of myself. I'm a dinosaur. So what I can do is. Uh, I can copy the discs and mail them to you. I, I people, I get people that send me stuff, and they're like, "Oh, all you have to do is download thumb drive this and that." I'm, I'm a T Rex. I'm a Brontosaurus. I don't know how to do any of that stuff, so I still have them all on DVD. And uh, we'll just send me your address, and, and I'll send you everything I have on you. Well, I'll definitely transfer whatever it costs you. I have no problem with reimbursing that. I love having that stuff on file for my kids. Yep. You know, they, they, they only see a little bit that's on YouTube, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of buried, you know, fights and exchanges that I, even I'd like to see. Like, I remember Rod Dolman, mm-hmm. but do I remember the fight? Right. I don't know. Not, not really. No, well, I got you covered. Don't, don't sweat. I got you covered there. Nope. Um, absolutely. Uh, another guy I want to ask you about who later became your teammate. Uh, and, and uh, I have my minor league, uh, enforcer, Mount Rushmore, and he's on there. He's cemented on there. Serge Roberge, uh, in your first year, you fought him twice in one game. I don't know if you remember that. And, uh, to me, Serge is such a technician. I know Mike McWilliam told the story that, uh, you know, Mike's a huge man as well. By the time they were done fighting, they literally had to cut Mike's jersey off. That Serge had twisted his jersey in knots and everything. Um, do you remember fighting Serge not once but twice in this, in a single game? Yeah, and I believe that was that a Sherbrooke game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I even remember that more because I think we were down to four defensemen, and I think he purposely was trying to get me so then you know get me off the ice, and now we're down to three. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and then I, I know, I think I fought Serge another time later on, yeah, but yeah, later, later. Yeah, um, yeah, obviously, you know, the guy, and I, and I, I can say this from both perspectives. Mm-hmm. He was a teammate of mine. Yeah, this fantastic guy. Him and his wife were super people. Mm-hmm. You know, they had me over for dinners. We hosted each other. Wonderful man. But certainly, you know, when you talk about a guy who paid his dues, 
you know, Serge paid his dues, man. Oh, yeah. like, he, he fought everyone and everything. And uh, he was, he was a tactician for sure. He knew <clears throat> what he was going to do prior to going in. And if the fight changed, he knew how to adapt and he knew how to tie up. He was more than willing to go both hands. And, you know, him and I had a couple exchanges where it was just toe to toe. You know, he was more than willing to, to do that too. So definitely a guy that uh, earned his chops. And uh, I think the respect of a lot of guys for sure. Yeah. And uh, two other guys I wanted to ask you about from this season. Now I don't have the video on these, unfortunately uh, I'm, I can only deal with what people saved at the time, but they're both NHL veterans. And one of them is one of the pictures I sent you was uh, Cronin, the barbarian. You fought him when he was with bingo. And then another uh, fight with the, another Springfield Indian Del Kushner. So I don't know if you remember either one of those, and I don't have the video on those. I just figured I'd point those out since people would know those names too. Yeah, I don't know. Like Cronin, if you watch some of his fights too, and I like I'm always watching old tapes. I've got a PJ Stock thing that yeah goes to my phone all the time with all the old fights. Mm -hmm. He was a big dude, but he had no balance. He fell down a lot, mm -hmm. so he's a guy to fight. You were up and down with him, kind of thing, and. I don't remember much of that fight, but I think it was more like hanging on, wrestling, mm -hmm. like who's going down, kind of like a Mick Bakota fight. He's mm -hmm. like just a big huggy bear and try to get whatever hand free that he could. Um, certainly a guy that I had reach on, so I think he'd rather be in close on me and I would try to extend and get out away from him. Yeah. Um, Dale Kushner, I liked fighting Dale because he was a little bit smaller. He's in my wheelhouse that I could outreach him. Mm -hmm. So, but Dell was willing, Dell was more than willing to throw toe-to-toe -to -toe fights, right? Yep. And Dale also had a fight, and, you know, it's it's kind of funny. It, you look at the record or the track record, and it shows, like, 75 fights or whatever on that drop the gloves we we're talking about. And then there's all the, like you said, the rookie games, mm -hmm. the preseason games that aren't, that aren't on there. And I probably had another 75 on top of that. Yep. That that's just unknown. That's not on game sheets, nothing official, and the rookie games and stuff like that. But boy, oh boy, it's there. There's a lot more, and I do remember going toe to toe with Dale in uh, training camp too with Jersey. I think he was with the Islanders. Yeah, that was the next season. Next season, you went uh, preseason again. Unfortunately, no video on that. So yeah, you you had him in the, the American League the year before. Then the following season, you fight him. Uh, whether that was a rookie game or a regular exhibition game, I don't know. But uh, but yeah, he's on your card there. And another guy on your card. These these guys kind of go under the radar, but you know, I keep talking about like uh, the fight tape collection. The Mokazaks, they're on, they're on like every fight DVD, like two or three times. Just and they kind of go under the radar. And that season, you actually fought both of them. You fought John, who was with Adirondack in the preseason, and then you fought Carl in the regular season, who would have been with Maine. So you you completed the uh, the Mokazak uh, family there, the uh, the ones who were eligible to fight without going to jail. And I'm pretty sure John was, God, it was. I want to say he was a teammate for a short period of time or tried out with the Binghamton Rangers. Yeah, you're right. He was probably in camp because I remember him being with the Ranger organization. Yep. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I'm pretty sure we were in camp together. Yeah. You know, had a few meals together and sat down. He's a super nice guy, right? Mm -hmm. Super nice guy. And uh, just one of those guys that paid his dues, right? And 
you know, not a not a big guy, but he certainly was willing to take on much bigger guys than him in fights. So you got to tip a, tip your hat to anybody that's willing to do that for sure. And this was the year you mentioned George McPhee. Um, and George McPhee, I don't know anybody that likes the physical game that couldn't like George McPhee. Hobie Baker winner, by the way, so it, it could do it all. Uh, and even for myself, an Islanders fan, watching a guy like George when he played with the Rangers, I couldn't help but love the guy. Uh, what was it like playing with him? <laughs> yeah, I got I got a lot of fond memories with George. We we had a few beer together, and he was uh, he was a character. Um, I know that he was kind of down. He had blown his groin out and he, I think he was kind of knowing that he was at the end of his career and he kind of knew like, okay, I'm going to ride out my one way contract as long as I can. And I don't need to beat my death or beat myself to death to collect the funds. Yeah. So I don't think he was in any rush to get back. <laughs> to the lineup. So he was there as like uh, pure entertainment purposes down in Utica. Mm -hmm. and he was a fun guy in the dressing room. So, had a lot of laughs with him. Um, certainly guy, when you watch his fights, you would not want to fight him. Like, a maniac, both hands, and more than willing to take on guys way bigger than him. Oh, yeah. Again, you, you got to give him credit. He was uh, he was a gamer, and, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, and I'm not sure how short or long his career was, but... I think during his time, he was a pretty recognizable player, and uh, guys knew he was on the ice when he was out there. Yeah, I don't think his career was as long as it could have been. I think he did have a lot of injuries. And, uh, you know, like I said, being being in New York, we'd get the Ranger games and the Islander games. So I, back then, I could watch any hockey game, and you watch him, and it was always a guy like him and Larry Melnick when they were with the Rangers that uh, they did all the heavy lifting. And, and it really was heavy lifting. You talk about, you know, George McPhee fighting Bobby Nystrom. He's always in the middle of the flyer games with Dave Brown and, and guys like that. So, you know, for a little guy, George didn't see size. Like, he just, he would fight anybody. And I don't want to say he looked forward to it, but he definitely rose to the challenge. And I think the same thing with Larry Melnick as well. I always associate the two of them together with the Rangers. Yeah, I just exactly. Almost like a crazy tough. You yeah. know, there's tough and there's crazy tough because you're like, Man, oh man, you're you are taking on the big boys, and you're not trying to defend yourself. You are trying to throw the bombs with them. That's kind of the way George fought, and that's and that probably why his career was a little bit shorter than it was because yeah. he played with an unabashed terror, so to speak, going into the corners and in front of the net. So, and that's what got him in so many fisticuffs is he just played that way. But I love George, and I was loved his do so well and progress like I, he's a really brilliant guy too yeah he's, oh yeah mm -hmm. but he's super sharp super smart dude and you know there's a reason why he got his law degree in like half the time you usually get it in and you know graduated with honors in splitsville and he's in vegas and you know look what he did with that organization he yeah. literally put them on the map yeah he did because that 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 expansion route to go is probably one of the toughest ways to begin an NHL team, and look what he did with it. Well, I think they were smart putting uh, George in charge and then putting uh, Gerard Gallant as the head coach. I mean, you got two pretty smart hockey guys there, uh, you know, in charge of the hockey ops. I, I think they uh, they were very smart in hiring both of those guys. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, two, two, two. You know, and just intelligent hockey minds, right? And if they're on the same page and they know where they want to take that team, that's that's why they were so successful so quickly. Probably the most watched Dave Marcinician fight on YouTube has got to be the fight you had with Darren Kimball. Uh, maybe the one with Beller, which we'll talk about later, but uh, that fight with Darren Kimball, and I know they played it on the old show Rinkside a bunch of times, but uh, I mean, you talk about toe-to-toe, and that is what Darren Kimball is all about. Uh, I know you have to remember that fight you had with Kimby. Yeah, it was a good fight, and you know he's a tough guy, and he again he's another one of those guys that was willing to take on you know guys like Probert, and he he paid his dues and tried to fight as many guys and get his name and reputation up there. Yeah, I, I mean, I remember it. I, 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 the only thing I hurt on that fight was my hand. <laughs> I, I peeled back the skin off three of my knuckles. I had to get stitches. It never healed. For the entire season, I had to tape my hand for most of the year. And then if I got in a fight and I cut somebody, I'd get suspended. So it was, a, I mean, it was a good fight. Yeah. And uh, we both did well. And, uh, but I did, I, I really uh, tore my hand apart in that fight. So it uh, did me for quite a while. I couldn't, I couldn't put my hands in my pockets. I'd be peeling all the scabs <sighs> in off my hand for the rest of the year. It's, yeah, it was, it was a long-lasting fight for sure. Another guy you fought later in the year, a former devil, Randy McKay. And Randy McKay, I think sometimes it goes under the radar. I think both things, how tough he was, and also he was a pretty good player as well. Now, the fight you had with Randy McKay, I don't have it on video. I don't know how it went. So even if you don't remember the specific fight, uh, one thing I loved about how the American League used to be and how hockey in general used to be were the rivalries. And you were a part of that with Halifax, with the Maritime teams, but also with, with Utica, the upstate New York teams, uh, the rivalries that you had with them. Because at the time, New Jersey and Detroit was not a rivalry, but Utica and Adirondack. And it seems like Adirondack always had tough teams, and they were a rival of anybody you know, whether it's Binghamton later on with Capital District, uh, any all those upstate New York teams, it was a bloodbath every time you played. If you could just speak about that a little bit. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, Detroit was always going to have a good, or uh, Adirondack was going to always have a good team because, I mean, look who ran, Ken Holland, right? Yep. He's our Edmonton Oilers GM right now, right? And yeah. it's another a really smart hockey mind that knew, what the American League could do for an NHL team as a feeder team. So they weren't foolish, and they certainly were drafting players to to progress to the NHL level. Like, again, I talk about that development, and they knew that the American League could develop players to become good NHL players. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they, were, they had good, solid hockey teams all the time. Well, good forwards, good D, good goaltending, and well-coached. So, yeah, Randy, and, you know, I think Randy was a very underrated fighter, mm-hmm. uh, extremely strong on his feet, uh, balanced, and could throw both hands. So a, a guy you had to pay attention to when you were fighting him, and it took all your energy uh, to to match his strength. He was a very strong dude. Yeah. So I do remember tussling with him and uh, trying my best to make sure, like, he wouldn't get free and he wouldn't get the upper hand on me. Yeah. And then that year you, you had a playoff series against uh, Hershey. And I don't know if you remember this one, you, you fought Don Knockbauer. 
and you did pretty well in that fight. Uh, you landed a few big shots on him. I don't know if you remember that scrap. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> I even remember the comment after. Um, but yeah, yeah, Donnie was tough too, right? He was a gamer. And uh, again, just one of those things where I attest my reach to helping me out win, win certain fights like that, where I might have even been the same height as a guy. Mm-hmm. Just had longer arms, and it and it served me well to make sure if I could get a hold of a guy the right way, um, and I'll I'll say getting hold of the right guy or the a guy in the right way was definitely taught to me by Rudy Postchak and Mark Kachowski. Yeah, right off the bat, early in Kamloops, of how you grab that jersey, how you wrap it around an arm, and make sure you have control of a guy and you have your balance right. So that goes way back and. Those were those were tools I used right from the get go all through my pro career. And it's funny you say that because you, you talked about your your scrap with Craig Berube when you were in Jersey, and that's the one thing I noticed about that fight is you know he's a little older than you, not much, but it was almost and I mean Chief is a legend. It was almost like the first thing he made sure to do was get a grip the right grip on your right right arm that's that's the one thing i noticed when i watched that fight and you're talking about the importance of it now as well so if you watch that fight closely mm-hmm. he never hits me yeah but what happened on my uh index finger is mm-hmm. i grabbed him and and wrapped under so my hand was caught in his right so he's still he's still trying to throw right looks like he's getting punches off he's still not hitting me but I ripped my knuckle open for six stitches open oh, because of the force of me pushing against his fighting arm, his, his punching arm, and having that jersey. And back then, jerseys, they weren't mesh. Right. They were really thick, nylon-y. Yeah. Like, for so many fights coming out of them with a chafing on the back of my neck that would last three weeks. Yeah, jersey burn, right? would put vaseline on that during the winter and it would be scabbed up and it would it would hurt every time you put a jersey on if it, it was it was rubbing there mm-hmm. well yeah that importance of getting a hold of, of a guy in the right way and counterbalancing him is so ultra important right yeah Thank you.